The following message is from the Church at Greer Station. For more information, visit tcgreerstation.com. Now, last Sunday was Easter Sunday, and we began a teaching series in the opening chapter of Paul's letter to the Ephesians. And we 100% lifted the name of this series from Hebrews chapter 2, verse 3, which talks about uh, the author of Hebrews refers to the salvation we have in Christ as so great a salvation. It is a big, and it is a rich, and it is a deep, and it is a full salvation, one that we will spend eternity exploring and enjoying and delighting in forever. And we wanted to just Take a look at this incredibly dense bit of scripture, Ephesians chapter 1, and just sort of tease out what are some of the benefits of salvation that Paul describes here for this church, for this group of Ephesian Christians. Paul tells us in this letter that he's writing from prison and he's writing for the sake of encouragement. And so we, we, we want in on some of that encouragement that Paul is, is writing and offering to the Ephesians. Now what's striking to me is you read this letter and it is so beautiful. And the language is just so rich and powerful. It's striking that Paul is, in fact, writing this letter from a jail cell. Like, it's amazing that Paul can say some of the things that he says in this opening chapter. You know, blessed be the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. And he does so sitting shackled to a Roman guard in a prison. It's remarkable, right? Christians all over the world celebrated just last week the hope that we have in Jesus. And I think a pressing question for us as we approach verses 11 through 14 here in this scripture is the question of hope. Are we a people of hope? In what do we place our hope and do we have hope? In 1946, there was an Austrian man named Viktor Frankl. His picture will be on the screen. Viktor Frankl, who released an autobiography and sketch of his time in a Nazi concentration camp. The name of this book was called Man's Search for Meaning. Now, during Frankel's immense suffering, and, and, and you read about concentration camps and things in World War II, and it, we just cannot even begin to wrap our minds around the evil and the, the immensity of the suffering that these folks experienced. But in this book, he made this observation about his time in this concentration camp, that humans have a tremendous capacity for hope. But not just a capacity for hope, a necessity for hope, a life and death need to hope in something. He drew on his experience watching the literally lethal effects of having hopes crushed in this concentration camp. He talked about this experience where uh, there was a bunch of deaths in the concentration camp over the course of 1944 into 1945. And he theorizes that the reason is because a lot of these prisoners had decided that they were going to be home by Christmas. And when Christmas came and went and they didn't go home, their hopes were crushed. He identifies the truth that I think we know, that hope sustains and nourishes us through incredible hardship. Frankel drew this conclusion. He says, he who has a why to live for can bear almost any how. In other words, if we have something to look forward to, something, something that we can, can that something that can motivate us, that can give us meaning, that can give us some kind of hope, we can bear up under almost anything. And he's speaking of the life-giving in the most literal sense of the phrase, the life-giving power of hope. Now, we know that experience on a small scale, right? We, we know what it's like to be driven or 
maybe better to be said, to be kind of pulled through hardship by hope. Imagine the most tedious and drudgerous, if that's a word, job that you had in your adolescence, whatever that was. Maybe it was a, maybe you worked for, uh, it was a blue-collar job, and you worked for a builder, and you did back-breaking work up under houses, you know, digging drain lines, whatever it might be. Maybe you, it was at the grocery store, and you just scan groceries, and you scan groceries, and you scan groceries. Maybe it was working for FedEx, just moving box after box after box. Maybe that's you, present tense. Whatever it is, think about the most tedious, drudgery-filled job you've ever had with long, hard days. One of those jobs where you sleep horribly the night before you clock in, dreaming about the work that you're going to be doing the next day, only to wake up and have to do what you just dreamed about the night before. But as you work, as you work, you find something, something that you latch onto that keeps you sane. Maybe it's going fishing with your dad that's weekend, or it's a, it's a, a birthday party, or a family get-together that you've been looking forward to for months, or it's a family vacation, or if you're introverted, it's a new book on the couch away from other humans. You latch onto some kind of small reward, and that small reward has the power to pull you through or push you through the drudgery, right? It's like not even an option for us to not do that. When we find ourselves stuck in drudgery, we hope. Okay, so if we zoom out and we consider our lives on a kind of macro level, let's ask, what do we hope in? What is pulling us through the drudgery and the tedium and the hevel? The human heart runs on hope. And what is that hope for us? Are we being nourished and enriched and sustained by some kind of hope? Or are we becoming emaciated and wasting away, hopeless and crushed by the drudgery? Do we have a hope that suffering can't take away? And again, if it's true that we need hope, is there any hope available to us that stands above and beyond suffering? What about the Bible? What is the hope that the Bible offers us? And what hope does Jesus in Easter, in his death, in his resurrection, what hope does Jesus offer us? That's what our scripture speaks to today, the hope that is offered us in Christ. It's the hope that Paul possessed that enabled him to write in prison and the hope that Christians all over the world have been celebrating for the past week. Now, last week, we uh, began in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 10. It was a, it was a part of a, a, a one long, 202 Greek word run-on sentence. And we talked about how Paul was writing to encourage these saints. And last week, we said that we wanted to enlarge our notions of salvation. We wanted to have a kind of a, a bigger understanding of what God has done in Christ. And from that, that we, we wanted to be changed. We wanted to be made new as we considered the riches of salvation in Jesus. And then last week, we took a look at seven things God has done for us in Christ. In chapter 1, verse 3, God has blessed you in Christ, he says. This is kind of the whole deal for Paul, being in Christ. You receive amazing benefits by being related and united to Jesus. God purposed to purify you, Paul says in verse 4. We're not saved by good deeds, we're saved to good deeds. And God is too gracious to allow us to continue in sin and the the misery and the self-obsession that we wallow in. Instead, God calls us out of that and he works to purify us. Verses 5 and 6, we saw that God purposed to adopt us. That the son, of man, the son of God became man in order that men could become sons of God. In verse 7, we saw that God redeems us. He breaks the grip of sin, your flesh, the world, the devil, and death on you by the blood of Jesus. In verse 7, we saw that God forgives us. We, we, we just considered for a second that Christ has eliminated our guilt. Can, can you fathom that? The, the, the tremendous amount of guilt that each of us carries. Christ eliminated it on the cross in his death. 
God lavished his grace on you in verses seven through eight. All of the saving activity is a lavishing of God's grace. It's like, it's not tight-fisted or Scrooge-like. It's like ladle after ladle after ladle of graciousness towards you. And then in verses nine and 10, we saw that God made his plan for the ages known to us. And doing all of this, it's like God has peeled back the curtain on what he's always intended to do, to gather knuckleheads like us up into the person and work of Jesus Christ. That's always been his plan. And it's remarkable that we get to be a piece of that. Now, one thing to note, and, and I, I did wonder, at, at, one thing to note is that there's a lot that we didn't talk about last week in verses 3 through 10. Two words in particular, election and predestination. Those are really big concepts. So what we're going to do this week, Aaron and I are going to record a podcast, and we're going to talk about election and predestination, how to think about those ideas as they're presented in Ephesians chapter 1. So if you're familiar with our church podcast, it's called All of the Above. You can just run into your whatever you use to listen to podcasts, type All of the Above at Greer Station, and you'll find it. And you can listen to us later this week. Aaron and I, we're going to, we're going to talk about that particular issue. Hopefully that will be edifying to you. All right, let's look at verse 11, Ephesians chapter 1. In him, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. Now, one of the things we talked about last week was that there's some variation of this idea of being in Christ that's featured 11 times in this short section of Scripture. That idea is used 36 times in the book of Ephesians, and it's used something like 160 times in all of Paul's letters. So for Paul, being in Christ, being in him, is a really, really significant deal. In fact, we might say it's the sum of all of what Paul understands salvation to be, our union with Jesus. The fact that when Christians believe in Christ, they're united to Christ, and all that belongs to Jesus becomes the Christians, belongs to them. When we place faith our faith in Jesus, what is true of Jesus becomes therefore true of his people. In the same way, and Paul makes this connection later on in the book of Ephesians, in the same way that everything that's true of a husband, in a sense, becomes true of his bride when they become united in marriage. His name, his bank account, his possessions, his estate, you know, particularly in this world, that was a significant deal, that all that he had became hers. In verse 6, it says that God has given us grace. He has blessed us in the beloved. Like, think about that for a second. Your status right now, Christian, is in the beloved, capital B, beloved, the son who has always been the son from eternity past. You are united to Christ, and your status is one who is in the beloved by the grace of God. The quote we saw last week, and it's just so good, we have to read it again. Not the full thing, just part of it. From reformer Martin Luther. He said this, Without cost and out of pure grace, this is a prayer of confession that he offers to the Lord. He says, Without cost and out of pure grace, you have given me this boundless blessing in your dear son. Through him you take sin, death, and hell from me and do grant me all that belongs to him. Amen. We are blessed in the beloved. All that's true of Jesus is true of us. His death becomes our death. His resurrection becomes his resurrection. Paul says multiple times in the book that we are seated with Christ in the heavenly places. We are in the beloved, Christian. Now something that's really worth pointing out here, really quick, we could talk a lot about this. But something that's really worth us kind of considering and reflecting on this week is there's an incredibly important and countercultural takeaway 
from the truth of our union with Jesus. And it's this, that being in Christ means we are not our own. We do not belong to ourselves. One of the doctrinal commitments of the world is the conviction that we belong to ourselves. Our sexuality, our gender, our names, our image, whatever, we we have the, quote, freedom to make ourselves. And our task in life is to discover and make ourselves and make our identities. But at the very least, our union with Christ means that this is the most fundamentally true thing about us. Our name is given to us in Christ. Our identity is given to us in Christ. Our story is Christ's story. And so we don't have the burden of trying to find ourselves or make ourselves. We don't have to live in the world of competition and comparison and social media brand management because our identity is is those who are in Christ. We belong to Christ. We are in Christ. Our union with Christ is the truest thing about each of us, Christian. And so a question for reflection is just for us to think about that fact. How does our union with Christ free us from the burden of having to make our own identities? How does does belonging to Jesus actually give us freedom in a world that tells us freedom looks like breaking away from all constraints? Now, being in Christ, what benefit does Paul specifically mention here in verse 11 that we receive by being in Christ? He says, we've been given an inheritance. We've been given an inheritance. Now, in verse 7, Paul mentions that we have been adopted in Christ. And we think about adoption, I even did this last week. Our, our, our minds typically kind of run towards um, the, the gotcha um, celebrations that we see on social media. I said last week that one of the kind of social media videos that always you know, gets the old tears churning are the gotcha ceremonies where a child is legally, the, uh, an adoptive family is you know, given the, the legal uh, right to parent this particular adopted child. It's an incredibly powerful thing. And so our minds typically run towards child adoption when we think about adoption. But actually, when Paul talks about adoption, he's probably most likely referring to adult adoption, which seems like a a little bit of a kind of a strange scenario for us. In Paul's world, adoption was uh, was often bound up with a lack of an heir, with a lack of someone to receive an inheritance. So think about an aging family with wealth or some kind of large estate. But that family, that father, didn't have any particular heir to give his estate to. And so there was kind of this lingering question, like, who can take this over and run this thing for me? Who can enjoy the wealth and the, you know, the, the, the little empire that I've built? If you remember the story of Abraham, that's essentially the pickle that Abraham was in. Abraham was advanced in years. Abraham was well-to-do. Uh, Abraham did not have a son. God promised him. He was looking around. He didn't have that son. And so he was kind of like, who is my heir? Who's going to inherit my estate? Who's going to inherit all of the the things that I have to bless them with? Oftentimes what would happen in the ancient world is that this couple, if they didn't have someone that they could give their inheritance to, would adopt somebody. And oftentimes it would be a household servant or a beloved slave who was formerly a slave, who was welcomed into the family, granted the status of son, and received the inheritance. Isn't that like the plot of Annie or something? I don't remember. That just occurred to me. I'm sure there's a movie somewhere where you've got a really moving story like that. In the ancient world, this would happen to someone where they would be legally granted sonship so they could receive the inheritance from the father. Now watch what what Paul says about adoption in Galatians 4. I have this on the screen. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, Born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, 
so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. All right, so notice what Paul points out here. He says that God sends Jesus to become a man. Paul doesn't say Jesus in this passage. He doesn't say God sent Jesus. He says God sends his son, born of woman, born under the law. He sends the son to redeem those that are born, under, born of woman, born under the law, i.e., all of y'all, me, us. Why? So that we could receive adoption. So that we could receive the son's sonship, which entails, verse 6, the Holy Spirit of Jesus himself being given to our hearts, teaching us to relate to God as Father and making us heirs. So Paul says, in him, we have received an inheritance. Like someone who is formerly alienated from this family, we've been welcomed in and we've been granted the status of son and we have received an inheritance in Christ. Okay then. What does it mean that we have received an inheritance? I mean, in verse 12, Paul talks about this in terms of, of hoping in Christ. He says that we, we were the first to hope in Christ. He, he conceives of salvation as hoping in Christ. And he sees this inheritance as something that we, we hope for, something that we don't yet possess fully, but something that we will possess one day. This is something that we are hoping for. All right, so if we're hoping in this inheritance from Christ, what is the inheritance? As heirs and as sons, what are we given? Are you ready for this? We inherit everything. We inherit everything. Look again at verses 9 and 10. He talks about God making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven, and things on earth. Paul says that everything is united in Christ, things in heaven and things on earth. And it's like, this is the inheritance that the Father has always wanted to give his son, Jesus. The beloved son from of old, he wanted to create a world and make it teeming with beauty and glories and goodness so that he could give it to Jesus. And in chapter 1, verse 10, Paul says that is precisely what the Father has done. He has set Christ up over all things, and in him all things are united, in heaven and on earth. Christ is the true Adam who rules over all things as it always ought to have been. And then in verse 11, Paul shifts. In him, in Christ, we have obtained an inheritance. That is to say, the estate that belongs to Christ, he shares with us. And this too is keeping with God's grand plan for the ages. Verse 12. God does this. He set us up in this way, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Like we said last week, God purposed to gather a people into Christ to bless the absolute mess out of them. Paul says that's what he's done for us, Christian. Now in the Old Testament, we see a bit of a, bit of a snippet of God's purposes here. Now in places like Deuteronomy, when, it's, when an inheritance is spoken of, it's almost always spoken of in terms of land. 
You think about the inheritance that the people of Israel were promised. It was a piece of real estate by the Mediterranean, right? God's old covenant promise to Abraham and to Abraham's family was he was going to set them up as a nation in a place. But in the New Testament, in the New Covenant, the land promise is fulfilled here in this promise. The old covenant people were given a portion of the land, but the new covenant people are given the world. Jesus himself, speaking of his people in the Beatitudes in Matthew 5, what does he say? The meek shall inherit the earth. It's like in Beowulf. Did you guys read Beowulf in English class in ninth grade? Or watch the movie? There's probably a movie, multiple movies. Remember that story? Beowulf, at the end of the story, he's this hero who defeats a dragon who's guarding a cave full of riches. He defeats the dragon, and then he unleashes those riches to his people. Christ was given everything by the Father, and then Christ turns and gives it to us. An old dead guy said it like this. By virtue of the believer's union with Christ, he does in fact possess all things. God, three in one, all that he is and all that he has and all that he does, all that he has made or done, the whole universe, bodies and spirits, earth and heaven, angels, humans and devils, sun, moon and stars, land and sea, fish and fowls, all silver and gold, kings and potentates, rulers, are as much the Christians as the money in his pocket, the clothes he wears, the house he dwells in, or the victuals he eats. Yes, properly his, advantageously his, by virtue of the union with Christ, because Christ, who certainly does possess all things, is entirely his, so that the Christian possesses it all. More than a wife, the share of the best and dearest husband, more than the hand possesses what the head does, it is all his. Therefore, handle snakes. Just kidding, don't do that. It was a joke, it fell flat. (laughs) You know how in Ecclesiastes, one of the things we talked about was embracing the limits of time and space? How you and I won't likely ever get to climb Mount Everest. We talked about how we probably won't ever get to see the Swiss Alps. I went swimming in the Black Sea one time and it was really cold and miserable and I I wanna do it again. And the likelihood of that happening is, is pretty low, this side of eternity. It's unlikely I'm ever going to go back to Colorado and see those amazing mountains in person. I will probably never eat Greek food looking over the Mediterranean Sea. We know that we said that we were supposed to embrace our limits. We were supposed to accept the fact that we're all, you know, constrained by our mortality. Well, all of that's true, sort of. Because, friends, what Paul is telling us is that in Christ, we have been given everything. We have been restored as the human race to our rightful place as rulers and vice regents over God's good world. And you and I will one day be unleashed to roam and explore the unencumbered Everest without the burden of my own sin, without being trapped in my own head, without the need to post it on an Instagram story. I can explore and enjoy the glories of God's good creation as those ruling alongside King Jesus and his renewed world forever and ever. And so what hope does Jesus offer us? The hope that he offers us is the inheritance of everything in Christ. What's being promised here isn't just heaven, though obviously the glories of life after death with God in heaven are unbelievably sweet. What's being promised here is life after life after death. 
Resurrection, as Christ has been raised, at the capital E, end of all things, when Christ crushes death and he crushes evil, finally and forever, and we are given his very world. So great a salvation indeed. This is what Christ has done for his people. Now don't misunderstand, when we start talking and when Paul speaks in this incredibly lofty language, we're not saying that we're raised to Jesus' status in the sense that we are now divine, dually natured sons in the, in the way that Christ is. Christ is, is unique as the one and only son of God and the divine you know, origin of his nature, so to speak. The New Testament is abundantly clear that eternity is about praising the Father and the Son's glorious grace, that every knee and tongue will bow to and confess Jesus as Lord, period, 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 period. But what's so amazing about this grace is that Jesus, deserving of all of that, deserving of all glory, honor, praise, and all things, he opens up the storehouses of everything to his people by sheer grace to you and to me. By virtue of the believer's union with Christ, he does in fact possess all things. The Christian possesses it all. More than a wife, the share of the best and dearest husband, more than the head possesses, hand possesses what the head does, it is all his to the praise of his glorious grace. Okay, so that's all good, I guess. But how do we know? How do we know? How do we have any certainty about this? Because this seems really doggone sweet. Verse 13. And him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Paul in verse 12 speaks of those who were first to believe. He says when we, those who are first to hope in Christ. He's probably talking about the first Jewish converts there in verse 12, himself included. He's celebrating the inheritance given to them in Christ. But he wants to be clear that this is not a Jewish thing. This is not something that was limited just to ethnically Jewish Christians. In Christ, you also, he says in verse 14, probably speaking about Gentiles, you and me, us. He says, you also, when you heard the word of truth, when we heard the gospel and we believed, that was at VBS when we were a kid or here at TCGS or a few years ago or wherever that was, when we heard the promise of the gospel and we believed, he says, we were sealed with the Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. He's saying, have you believed in Jesus? Have you repented and turned to Christ for salvation? Have you received the Spirit? Have you, have you had the eyes of your heart opened to see the glory of Jesus? Have you repented of sin and are you learning to repent more and more? Are you learning holiness? Are you learning slowly but surely to love God's Word? Are you learning to love prayer? Are you beginning to develop the fruit of the Spirit? If you've received the Holy Spirit, the inheritance is yours Christian. The Holy Spirit of Jesus that we receive upon belief in Jesus is the down payment, he says. It's the deposit. It is the earnest money. It is God giving a first taste and preview of this inheritance so that we can rest assured that it belongs to us. us. By the Spirit, God seals his people. We are locked in. The envelope has been licked and pressed. The wax has melted. The king's ring is stamped on it. We are held fast by God himself.
So the question is, how do we respond to this offer of hope that's held out to us in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 11 through 14? Maybe you're here tonight and you can't muster any kind of hope in anything. Do you feel what Viktor Frankl observed, that life without hope isn't life at all? It's almost a subhuman existence, as if we were not built for that. Do you see the fishing and the, the, the promise of the family vacation and the, the family get-together that you look forward to? Are, are you beginning to see that those things just can't quite sustain you? They offer some kind of meaning and hope in the present. They just aren't strong enough to sustain the hope that the human heart needs. And are you compelled by the hope that is offered to us in Jesus? Do you see the astounding picture the New Testament gives us of what we're promised in Christ? And do you see why this unleashed a movement in the ancient world that has never been matched or replicated? Do you see why Christians go on and on and on and on about hope and about Easter and about life everlasting? If you're not a Christian, could you believe in this gospel? That Christ died for our sins to open up this kind of hope for his people. Christian, do you see how this passage is intended to be jet fuel for us? Jet fuel for our love of God, jet fuel for our ability to sustain up under hardship and uncertainty and difficulty. This is almost like these these are passages that I feel just frankly like so much pressure to just preach well because it's like so good and I'm like I just gotta I gotta get it right and I gotta preach it really well and I can't mess it up. But at the end of the day, you can't mess up a passage like Ephesians chapter one, verses eleven through fourteen. It is just so doggone good. It almost feels too good to be true. And it makes sense why the New Testament refers to it as good news. Because that's what it is. And the reason that Christ does all of this, we're told again and again and again, is it's to the praise of his glorious grace. So that we would say, so great is this salvation. So great is this God. So great is our Redeemer. So great are the gifts he gives to his people. So great is his mercy towards us, towards this lot. So great is his grace and kindness to the praise of his glorious grace. May that be our response as we read and consider these scriptures these few weeks. Now, in the next few moments, we're going to take the Lord's Supper. And in taking the supper, we are receiving the appetizers for the wedding feast that is to come. When our faith is made sight and our hopes are realized and all that is promised to us comes true, when the kingdom comes and King Jesus restores all things and restores us. The way that we do the Lord's Supper at TCGS is uh, I'm going to pray. And after I pray, I'm going to read a liturgy portion for us that sort of frames out the meaning of the supper and offers an invite. Then after I read this first portion, I give you some space to pray and consider your heart before the Lord and ask the Lord to expose any sins that need to be repented of. And then when you're ready, you can come up and receive the elements. Um, You can grab a a cup of, uh, our elders will be posted up here, you can grab a cup of juice and a bit of bread. Uh, then you make your way back to your seat, and we'll take the elements all at once, all together. And uh, which of the plates are gluten-free? The what? The small one is the gluten-free, if that is, if you have gluten-free needs. Let's pray.
Lord Jesus, we groan along with all of creation for redemption, and we eagerly anticipate the day when you will return and you will make all things right. We thank you that uh, even now we can trust in your sovereign hand, and we can trust in your goodness and your bigness over everything, and we can trust that there is not a speck of dust that does not fall apart from your loving hand, Father. We pray that you would make us a people of hope, that people sustained and nourished by the hope we have in Christ. Lord Jesus, we pray uh, with gratitude in our hearts. We pray thanking you for your death and your suffering on our behalf so that we could receive these things that you have given to us. And we pray, Lord Jesus, that as we take these elements, that you would be magnified in us and that our hearts would be stirred towards, uh, towards you and towards gratitude for your gospel and your self-giving love. And I do pray for anyone in our presence tonight who has not yet believed that they would that your spirit would open their hearts and that they would see the, the power of the gospel and the power of the cross and that they would respond with belief and repentance. Pray all this in Jesus' name.